Please pray with me. Father, as we listen to the words of Your Son this morning, I pray that our hearts would be kindled with a hunger for His righteousness. I pray that we would be full of the Spirit that cries out, Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Amen. I told... By the way, if you're wondering what happened this morning, we have guests with us. You're like, yeah, I figured. Glad that y'all are here. It's actually special to have y'all with me, with us, to worship. I told Justin this morning that this sermon is his fault. He sent me a few texts about a week and a half ago that got my mind going about this passage. And if you like where it goes, go tell him, good job. If you don't, just rest assured he would have developed it totally differently. There's danger in the superable, memorable parts of Scripture. You know the parts that we put on coffee mugs and t-shirts that we all know by heart? There's danger in those parts. The more memorable a phrase is, the more it gets repeated, right? And the more it gets repeated, what happens? We stop paying attention, right? That's not a real danger. Those parts should be repeated. But we do tend to stop paying attention to things that we know really well. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill. We know, we know, right? We're supposed to be good examples. And so we put the slogan on a t-shirt or a coffee cup. Salt and light, all the while ignoring what's actually being said. There's actually something profoundly shocking in Jesus' statements. And I imagine that some in the audience were actually quite uneasy when he said this. There are people in the audience who would have said, wait, 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 that's inappropriate. What are you saying? I'm not talking just about the conviction that some might have felt. And I'm not even talking about the fact that when we feel conviction, we tend to get self-defensive and justify ourselves. No, 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 I keep the law. I do what God requires me. I do His will. What Are you asking something more of what God asks of me? I'm not talking about that conviction, the uneasiness that comes from realizing that we're not particularly good salt or good light. I'm talking about something even below that. Shocking, that. shocking enough that Jesus had to turn and say, don't misunderstand me. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. That may, may seem like a strange jump to you, but the Sermon on the Mount is an incredibly tightly woven delivery. Every piece leads to the next and is intricately tied together. It's not a random series of aphorisms or proverbs. It's a tightly woven discourse. And Jesus turns after this statement to say, I didn't come to abolish the law, because that's exactly what some people would have thought upon his hear hearing him say, you were the salt of the earth. You were the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. There are people who would have heard those statements, and I'm going to name them in this sermon, the super rigorous conservative nitpickers of theology. It's a technical category. 
They exist in every church. I don't know. You know, the people that they hear something and they go, that's not exactly what it says. You didn't use that verse correctly. And there's people who would have heard Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And they would have thought, I think he's misusing scripture. He's playing fast and loose with it. And Jesus, knowing where this will take them, says, I did not come to abolish the law. I'm going to explain in a second what it means or what they would have thought, what they would have heard that would have made them think he was playing fast and loose with Scripture. But we have to take a bit of a detour that's an important detour because he says, I doesn't, didn't come to abolish the law, but instead to fulfill it. And we need to talk about what it means that he came to fulfill it. What is fulfillment? There's some things that we discard after fulfilling them. A to-do list, a grocery list. It's useless once it's done, right? You throw it away. The job is done. But then there's other things that we actually only begin to use after we've fulfilled them. Nobody wants to live in a half-fulfilled home project. We use them after we fulfill them. You see, there's different types of things. Some that on fulfillment get thrown away. Some that on fulfillment actually begin to get used. And then there's things that upon fulfillment, and this is like a marriage, you would never want to repeat it. And yet you certainly are not going to throw it away. In fact, you continue to celebrate it every single year regularly in an anniversary. There's things that are fulfilled in different ways. I was thinking this week as I was thinking about the passage about the fulfillment of a paint-by-number picture. Give a child a piece of paper with some lines and some numbers. And what does it mean to fulfillment? Not something now can be discarded, but instead something is more beautiful than it was before. Something worth putting on the fridge, worth putting on the wall. My point in all of this is fulfillment can mean different things in different moments. And when we hear Jesus saying, I came to fulfill the law, we need to keep all of those concepts in mind. The sacrificial system, how does he fulfill it? He fulfills it with a final act that completes it so it's never to be used again. That's one sort of fulfillment. But even that final act, his death on a cross, ends up being kind of like a marriage, one of those things that although we never repeat, we continue to celebrate Sunday in, Sunday out at the Eucharist. You see how this is fulfilled. There's other things in the law that are fulfilled. Think the ceremonies, the cultic practices, Think things like kosher laws, that these are fulfilled because what they were pointing to all along has now come true, and we don't need them anymore. But then there's other things, and this is very pertinent for the Sermon on the Mount, that are fulfilled in a different way. Because the moral law, what we call the moral law, is fulfilled not by discarding it, like the sacrificial system, but instead it's fulfilled like that paint-by-number picture. What it was is more beautiful now, seen in light of Christ. This is what Jesus is concerned with in the Sermon on the Mount. So right after this, he goes on to talk about aspects of the moral law, murder. And he fulfills it by fleshing it out by making it more beautiful, by saying it's more than just the physical act of murder. It's anger. It's slander. It's the 
critical speech that springs from hating somebody. He's drawing the picture so that it's not just black and white lines, but it's actually full color to the depths of the heart. He does the same thing with adultery. It wasn't just about the physical act. It's about the lust behind it. He does the same thing with false witness. It's not just about perjury. It's about every drop of your speech and your honesty. He does the same thing with covetousness. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he fleshes out what he means by fulfilling the moral law. And in each instance, the picture that he gives is richer and deeper and fuller than before. In other words, we're talking about the sort of fulfillment that's not a discarding, but instead we're left with a bigger, thicker, more rigorous picture. That's what he's about here. He's saying this, and in the midst of saying it, it suddenly begins to make sense that he says your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees. The professional keepers of righteousness. Because they were, if we stick with the paint-by-number picture, concerned with the lines and the numbers, keeping the 13 in exactly the right place and keeping this black and white line in exactly the right place. And Jesus is saying you have to go deeper and beyond that. You have to paint the picture. Your righteousness has to surpass those because you have to understand that murder includes the way you think about your brother. And adultery includes the way you think about that woman down the street. He fleshes it out and said, in this kingdom, your righteousness has to be the fully fulfilled version, the painted and picture version. That's the digression on what he means by fulfillment. And I promise you that it's important in the end. But I want to come back to that question. What would people have heard that made this statement about, I'm not here to abolish the law? What would people have heard that made that statement be necessary? Why would they be thinking he's playing fast and loose with the law? The salt of the earth. The salt of the earth to the resident theological conservative nitpicker. The salt of the earth would have sounded like a departure from the law. This is stuff that we don't even hear because we're not embedded in their culture, reading their scriptures the way they were, thinking their thoughts. But it would have felt like calling us the salt of the earth was Jesus departing from the law. Salt is the thing that preserves. It brings healing. It prevents rot. It is the picture of blessing because it turns bland into flavorful. It's the, the symbol of blessing and preservation and healing. And you say, what is that thing to that person listening to Jesus' sermon? And that thing is actually throughout the Old Testament, the law itself. This is why they would have thought Jesus was playing fast and loose with the law because he said, you are the salt of the earth. And they would have said, well, hold up. The law is the salt of this land. You go back and read Deuteronomy, that book that was discovered and given to the king in our Old Testament lesson. And throughout that book, over and over, Moses says, when the land is full of the law, guess what there will be? Life, preservation, protection, blessing. The exact things that salt does, this is what the law will do if the land is full of it. And so what does he command the people in Deuteronomy? Take the law, meditate on it, think about it, teach it to your kids, talk about it wherever you go, and above all, 
Obey it. Because if you treat the law with this high regard, you will see a land full of the things that salt symbolizes and does. Blessing, preservation, life, healing. And so when these people heard Jesus, they would have thought, hold up, I'm not the salt of the earth. The law is the thing that preserves. The law is the thing that heals. And they could have trotted out their verses to actually justify their point. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. You see, it's the law that does it, not me. You're playing fast and loose with the law. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden to that resident nitpicker. This also would have sounded like a departure from the scriptures. Because what is the city set on the hill? It's Jerusalem. It's not me. It's Jerusalem. Because the temple's in Jerusalem. And God's in the temple. And that's why there's a light on that hill. Because his light shines forth in the temple so that people... Jerusalem is the city set on a hill they would have protested. In Jesus' explanation, even it's like he's playing with them because he says you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. And you go, what lamp is the most pressing lamp in the minds of an observant first century Jew? It's the lamps that are actually in the temple. It's like he's playing with them because he knows exactly what they're going to be protesting. It's not the temple. I mean, it's not me, it's the temple. It's the temple in the midst of the city on the hill because all through the prophets we hear this declaration that God's light shines forth from Jerusalem and all the nations stream to Jerusalem. That's the city set on a hill. And so this resident theological nitpicker would have said, this man is saying, we're the salt? This man is saying, we're the city on the hill? This man is saying, we're the light? And Jesus looks at them and says, hold on. I'm not abolishing the law. In fact, what I'm doing right now is fulfilling it. I'm fleshing it out. Because the thing that the law did, that preservation, the enrichment, the healing, the blessing, that bringing the blessing, all along, it wasn't meant to be just the law itself. It was actually meant to be the people who had that law so thoroughly embedded in their hearts and souls that it animated every last thing that they did. In other words, it wasn't the law. It was the people who had it within them. That's the fulfillment. And he's saying, don't be mistaken. It's not the bare letter that does this. It's the person animated by it. Think of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked who does not stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates on it day and night, and he will be like a tree. You hear this life and blessing. And he will yield its fruit in season. Where does the fruit come from? The person. The person who's embedded in the law and has it circulating in their bloodstream. And the reason why that person would bear that fruit is because the law is the expression of the character of God. The law summed up in love and holiness is the expression of the character of God. And what Jesus is saying to them is that it's not the bare letter or the command. It's the character of God, his holiness and his love embedded in the hearts of people. That's what the salt of the earth is meant to be. 
And when you go back with that perspective and you read Deuteronomy, you realize it was there all along. The seeds were laid in Scripture that it's not the bare letter. It's the people in obedience to the law. It's the people meditating it on the law. Similarly, that thing that Jerusalem did, standing as a beacon of God's presence in a world of darkness, light shining forth from it because God was there all along. It wasn't meant to be the earthly city. That was a mere type of foreshadowing. It was pointing forward to the kingdom of God itself, to the people of God. It was pointing forward to the church, pointing forward to the very bride of Christ. That's why all of those prophetic passages hint that even though they're going to Jerusalem, they're going to be a part of the people of God. They're going along with the people of God. So Zechariah 8, 23 In those days, ten men from the nations will grab hold of the hem of the garment of one Jew and say, let us go with you. It's the people, the people whom God is dwelling in their midst. It's these people, the light shining forth from them. Jerusalem was a type of foreshadowing of a greater fulfillment. And Jesus, in the midst of the protest of these people, is coaxing them further along. He's fulfilling the law in front of them. And some would have been squeamish. It felt like it was inappropriate. But Jesus is saying, I'm not departing from it. I'm going to its very heart. I'm fulfilling it and fleshing out. You've got a black and white paint my number, and I'm putting the color into this picture so that you can see who you are supposed to be. You are the ones that are salting the earth. Healing, blessing, preservation. You are the ones that are the light of the world, a beacon of God's presence everywhere you go. And my guess is that there are some in the audience like us who heard and said, yes, I see. But as they wrestled, they felt, well, they perhaps began to squirm in the same way that perhaps this should make us squirm. Again, this is not something that we just need to put on a coffee cup and then forget. Think about what this call is. Does this really mean that we have to have God's character, his holiness, his love, so deeply embedded in us that everywhere we go, we turn the decay of the world back to life? That in our wake, we leave healing and preservation because we are so shot through with the goodness and the holiness and the love of God. He doesn't say, I hope one day you might become the salt of the world. You are. This is my design. This is my calling. That you would be so full of the holiness and love of God that everything you touch gets preserved. Everything you come into contact with gets healed. My guess is that some of them began to squirm and thought, is he really serious that unless that's the case, Our lives are as pointless as salt without saltiness. Does he really mean that his design for us is that our lives would be so full of the light-filled presence of God that we would be like a lighthouse, a beacon shining in the dark, that everywhere we go, everyone who sees it says there's safety there because God is there. I could go to that person. I could go to that church. And I would be safe because God is in their midst. 
Does he really mean that this church and all those represented in this room right now are supposed to be that light-filled city on a hill so full of the glory and light in the presence of God, so far above the darkness and the chaos of the world that everybody who goes by them says, that is where healing can be found. That is where God can be met. Does he really mean that if that's not the case, our lives and our churches are as pointless as a candle with a five-gallon bucket put on top of it? Like I said, I think some of the people would have begun to squirm. I don't know how to read this passage without feeling conviction. I don't know how we can confront it. Like I said, these aren't words to forget. They're not words to put on a t-shirt, salt and light, and be like, yahoo, salt and light. If we actually listen to them, and if Jesus is telling the truth, these are words that should bring us to our knees. Bring us to our knees with all the moments where we say, Lord, my heart and soul are just not that full of your holiness and righteousness and love. There's too many people that I come into contact with every single day that see way too much Stephen Breedlove and way too little light of God. There's too many places that I go where the last thing I leave in my wake is not healing and preservation and blessing, but instead the thing that I leave in my wake is selfishness, hurt. I don't know how to read these words without being face-to-face with the fact that we do not live up to this call. Like I said, I think there's plenty in the audience who would have squirmed. You know, you can imagine them thinking back to that moment in the marketplace, angry over the fact that they thought that they'd been cheated in the price. Those choice words they said in that moment to the person behind the counter. You know, you can imagine them thinking back to the moment with the brother and their sister, it, defending their own rights because I will not be walked on by you, leaving anything but life and healing in their wake. You can imagine them thinking back to the fact that I take the presence of God totally for granted. I don't cultivate it. I don't cherish it. It's not the thing that drives me every single day. All the points of conviction that all of us feel and all of them would have felt. If Jesus' words mean anything, this should bring us to our knees in this moment. And so you say, what do you do with this? What do you do with this? The obvious first thing is confession. When we confess our sins in a few moments, declare before the Lord the places where you have discarded his desire for you to be the source of healing and light in the world. We come to him with confession. And we come in gratitude because he says, hey, I saw that. And I love you just the same. We come in gratitude because he says, I cleanse you. The blood of my son washes you of all of this failure, of all your shortcomings, of all your sin. Come to him confession. Come to him in gratitude. But there's something in the Sermon on the Mount, like I said, it's this tightly woven discourse. There's something that I think is there for us even beyond that. Not because those two get superseded, but because they're not the only things. In the very Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites us to take seriously the fact that he would make us in to these sort of people. I think oftentimes in our confession, we just despair and think I'll never be any different. But in the very Sermon on the Mount, how does he begin? 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He invites you to long to be different than you are. He invites me to long to be different than I am. And so when we look at the failure to be what we are supposed to be in this, it's not a failure that leads to resignation. I'll never be different. At least God forgives me. No, he says, would you hunger for me? Remember the psalm? When thou didst say, seek my face, thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. The call to David came first, would you seek me? The point is that we can become, by the grace and spirit of the Lord, people who actually increase in righteousness, who leave more healing and life in our wake than we have in the past. And Jesus invites us to hunger for that. And so this morning, as you encounter these words, confess. Confess with me. Be grateful for the forgiveness of God. But begin to hunger for what could be as the Spirit works through you and transforms you. Jesus doesn't command us to do what cannot be done. He commands us to do what we cannot do. But he does not command us to do what cannot be done. Because by the Spirit of the Lord, we can actually be transformed. Amen.